You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. As 2022 comes to a close, it's a great time to look back at what's been accomplished over the last year and look toward the future for what's to come. Joining me for this conversation is Mike Waring. Mike has been involved in Washington politics for over 40 years. After starting his career in broadcast journalism, he worked on Capitol Hill and later transitioned to lobbying for a major trade organization. In 2000, he took over as the head of the University of Michigan's D.C. office, where he began to focus on tech transfer and IP issues, among others. He is a former assistant vice president of advocacy for Autumn and has been its advocacy and alliance chair for many years. Now retired from Michigan, Mike works as a consultant to Autumn on advocacy issues and chairs Autumn's Public Policy Advisory Committee. Welcome, Mike. I'm super excited to have you here on the air. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Lisa. Thanks for the invitation to appear and talk about what we've been doing in the advocacy area this last year, which has been really exciting, uh, very challenging, but, uh, but we've made a lot of progress, I think, in 2022. So, Mike, speaking of Autumn's advocacy activities, how would you characterize them over the last year? Well, I would say that was, first of all, it was a very active year, as was last year. We kind of built on the activities that were started last year, particularly on the issues that we've been talking about since then with the inclusion of these tech transfer provisions that hopefully will provide some funding for tech transfer uh, out of the NSF budget. Uh, it's been a challenging year, I would say, also. We've had a lot of challenges. We've had some legislation that we did not like that we've had to oppose. We've had some uh, administration uh, issues with some of the agencies. Department of Energy was one there where there really was a lot of blowback on some of the things that they wanted to do. But I think overall, I would say that this year has been very energizing for the association. I think members now have a much better appreciation for the kind of role that Autumn can play in terms of advancing these issues in Washington. I think there's much more involvement by people on the board, but also just autumn members in general, who I think are more aware of these things. And I think we have, again, sort of, uh, again, stressed the linking with our other higher ed associations as we work together on these issues. The more we can do that, the stronger we can provide a united voice as we deal with Congress and the administration on these various issues that confront us here in Washington. Yeah, I think the advocacy from on Autumn's part is just so incredibly important. And I wanted to start off by asking you in some more detail about some of the major issues that Autumn worked on over the past year. And you kind of alluded to one here about the uh, Chips and Science Act that Congress passed this fall. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that act came into being and what it means for tech transfer offices? Well, I can. So this is an idea that actually was born in 2021, and it was created by a group of tech transfer professionals uh, led by Chairman uh, uh, Ian McClure from University of Kentucky, uh, who put together the notion that maybe, you know, we've never really had the government providing direct financial assistance to tech transfer offices for tech transfer or for tech transfer related activities. So wouldn't that be great, particularly for some of these medium and smaller universities where they really don't have a large budget? 
and they maybe not have the expertise as some of the larger schools do. So could we do that? And so they were able, through conversations that they had over a period of several months, uh, convince the uh, the Senate uh, Commerce Science Committee, which was going to work on this larger science advocacy bill tied to the need to improve American competitiveness on, on computer chips, to add provisions that were basically were going to now allow in this case, the National Science Foundation, to actually begin making uh, grants directly to university tech transfer operations uh, that could be used for a variety of things. Could be used for, for paying salaries, could be used for training, could be used for patent costs, all sorts of things. Uh, regional collaboratives, which are always helpful. And I think that was an idea that the Senate uh, folks in the Science Committee liked. And uh, so the, the Senate, of course, acted and they did pass their bill. The House wasn't quite on the same page as they worked on that legislation in 2022, and they did not include those uh, provisions in their bill. So we had two different competing bills here. And at some point, we had to have those bills reconciled. Well, over time, uh, as the two sides began to work on this, and we sort of reached a deadline about the middle of the year, it became pretty clear that if we couldn't come up with something soon, there was not going to be a bill at all. And uh, of course, driving this, of course, is this need for American competitiveness in the chip manufacturing business. You know, we saw the effect on the auto industry in terms of the inability to get enough chips to make cars. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's nobody ever said that 10 years ago, and now they're saying that. So you understood that even in a competitive world, America needs to have a reliable chip manufacturing process. So at the end of the day, I think that was as much a driving force as anything, but when they finally got the two sides together, they came back with a sort of a pared down version of the two bills that they had kind of merged. And fortunately for the tech transfer folks, those tech transfer provisions, most of them from the Senate bill, were included in this final version, which then passed both the House and the Senate right as they were heading out for their August recess. So that was a great victory, I think, for tech transfer. Uh, it, was a, it was an example of how coming up with an idea, creating a background, explaining how it would work, giving data and facts to people in Congress is a useful exercise in advocacy, and it proves that if you have uh, good ideas, that they can actually be adopted. And so that was all adopted. Now, I say that by saying that that's an authorization bill. So what that bill does is it allows the National Science Foundation to create, if it wants to, one of these uh, programs to fund tech transfer. It doesn't provide the money. That comes through a separate process. So through the appropriations process, uh, NSF is one of all the federal agencies that has to get its money through the federal government every year. And it's part of a bill called the Commerce Justice Science Appropriations. And the House and Senate both have committees that work on that. Uh, the appropriations process got very bogged down this last year for fiscal 23, which technically started October 1st of 22. And so they had to, they sort of temporarily funded the government until the middle of this month. In fact, until, until uh, mid, uh, December 16th. Uh, and then on December 16th, the Congress then passed an extension for one more week for Congress to fill this, finish its work. It now looks like the week of the 19th that Congress will actually finally uh, finish all the appropriation bills into one giant, what they call an omnibus appropriation bill, where they take all the 12 bills and put them into one giant vote. And if that passes both the House and Senate and is signed by the president, then all of the federal government will get its money for the next fiscal year. And it looks like the NSF is going to get a pretty good increase no matter what the final number might be. And that ought to be enough, hopefully, to start some of these programs, new programs, including the tech transfer program. So that's really where we stand. We'll know more in a few days what the final verdict is going to be. And then once the money is doled out, 
I think we'll start seeing NSF respond, I would think, fairly quickly if they if they decide to move forward with this program. And then, of course, once it's up and running, we'll want to advocate for money for fiscal 24 and fiscal 25. It'll become an annual kind of thing that we'll push for. Well, that's exciting. It sounds like it's uh, looking fairly optimistic and promising that this funding is going to go through, which is so incredibly important. So fingers crossed that that goes well next week. So that was uh, one big issue for the year. But I think another one involved the Department of Energy's uh, Declaration of Exceptional Circumstances called DOE DEC. How and when did this issue get started and what was the role that Autumn played in this response? So again, going back to fiscal, going back to 2021, uh, the Department of Energy uh, indicated that it wanted to make some changes in the way it handled these sorts of um, grants. That uh, they they feel under under the gun from the, the Congress that some of the technology that they have funded has found its way overseas, particularly to China, uh, battery development and that sort of thing. And they've gotten a lot of flack about this. So they basically declared this exceptional circumstances, saying that if you wanted to. You had to actually get a waiver if you were going to try to take um, American uh, uh, intellectual property and then have it move to a a foreign competitor, particularly in China. And this was uh, of quite concern to us because I think, you know, sometimes these uh, we don't want to inhibit the the movement of these technologies. Um, We we don't want to give away, obviously, secret technologies, but things that are going to be in the in the in the major uh, commercial domain. Uh, there's not always a, a, an opportunity to uh, to do that here in the United States. There's not the development of American manufacturing here. We had a lot of discussions with both the Department of Energy as well as the White House about that issue because the White House was trying to figure out how can we keep these technologies from going overseas. And uh, in some ways you can, but in some ways you can't. You have to go where the markets are, where the manufacturing capabilities exist. And so we had a back and forth with them, working again with another larger coalition. The Bayh-Dole coalition was partners in that as well. We got them to back off a little bit on some of this, but they still have left this in place. And I think it continues to be something that we're watching very carefully. We're concerned that it was going to become a a new uh, system that other agencies would replicate. It turns out that no one else is trying to approach the problem this way. It also has raised an issue, and I think Autumn has tried to collect information about how often Universities have asked for sort of waivers of these rules to build, uh, to have the manufacturing done in, in the United States. And uh, how long does it take to get a waiver and how do waivers get adjudicated? And so it's created a whole discussion about that. So I think this issue will continue in some form or fashion. Uh, we were, we, we, we ended up in a better place than we started, but we're still not as happy as we could have been about how this all was handled. And I think it reminds us again that these kinds of interactions that we have with other countries are really important in the minds of the voters and the politicians, particularly with China, which is our biggest economic competitor. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, the Baidol Coalition, and Joe Allen has been a really good friend to this podcast and been on a number of times. And um, we've talked about the issue of marching rights. And I know that this has also been an issue that's been on Autumn's radar screen uh, with respect to NIH and marching in on medicine patents that are deemed to be way too expensive. So how has Autumn worked with other organizations to push back on this approach to this constant attempt of trying to uh, uh, control drug prices? Well, you mentioned Joe, and Joe has been a great leader for the Bayh-Dole Coalition. Of course, folks know he was uh, a staffer for Senator Bayh when the legislation was passed in 1980. So he's been at this a long time. You know, I think... Uh, Obviously, you know, um, universities do not create the products they develop. We don't make drugs. 
Um, we don't make all the technologies that we actually develop. We hand them off to other people to develop. And those folks are in the business of trying to figure out how to make a profit out of that, how to develop them, how to further develop the the, the, ne- the nascent technologies that we then hand them off in terms of a license that they can then move forward with. So, you know, I think uh, on the marching issue, it's been a, it's not a new issue. It's come up before. And uh, to its credit, NIH has never uh, agreed with the notion that march-in rights was a legitimate way to try to control what were deemed unreasonable um, uh, d- drug costs for drugs developed uh, under NIH uh, uh, research. Uh, even uh, even uh, NIH Director Collins, uh, on a number of occasions, did not agree with that and still doesn't, even though he's gone. He would still, if you asked him today, say that was not an appropriate role for, for NIH to play in terms of uh, of using the marching rights. There are very limited uses for marching rights, but there was no, there's no ever any anticipation. And both Bai and Dole said that themselves. There was never any anticipation this was going to be some kind of a lever on to use against uh, drug prices. So we've worked with that group. Uh, Autumn is a part of the Biodole Coalition. There are other groups that have also weighed in. Of course, the bio uh, organization of biotech companies, pharma and others, uh, who understand that this is a very slippery slope, that once you start holding the IP hostage to try to achieve an economic end, uh, where does that end? And I think that's a real troublesome issue. So, I, you know, again, universities are not drug manufacturers. If drug manufacturers are charging too much for their drugs, uh, that's a conversation to have with them, but you shouldn't take the IP that we created and use that as the hostage to try to get them to lower their prices. And I think so far we've been pretty good at that. There was an, uh, there have been several attempts in the last year, again, going back to this uh, prostate cancer drug, Extandi, created by UCLA. And there have been several petitions asking that the NIH march in and take that back because people believe that that cost of that treatment is too high. And uh, I don't know if it's too high or not. But the, the government has consistently not said that it's that that's an appropriate use of March in. Even as recently in the last two weeks, they were again approached and have said again, well, we'll take a look at this issue. But they've made no judgment. And I would hope that they would not. That comes even though there are members of Congress who have been pushing them to do that very thing. So this is all very political. Uh, it's gotten wound up in the drug pricing uh, issue that's much broader than just our piece of it. Uh, I think the, the 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 consensus place for Autumn has been. If there's going to be something done about drug prices, please don't get into the IP notion because that will that will chill development of other drugs that we need. If people think they're not going to be able to get a return on their investment, why would they invest in the next great breast cancer medicine or or lung cancer or, or any of these other diseases that we're all trying to cure? Uh, if we put roadblocks in the way of investors, then there's going to be less incentive for people to be willing to risk their money to try to solve some of these other health problems that we all face as our society. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue to another really big issue this year. In fact, it's very timely right now as we speak, and that's the IP waiver. And this one definitely has an international flair to it. Um, as you know, the WTO uh, earlier this year allowed unrestricted access to patented vaccines that were developed around the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And now, you know, they're debating whether or not to extend this to therapeutics and diagnostics. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the role that Autumn played in this and, and where you think this might be going? Well, yes. Yeah, so Autumn, again, working again with other allies who are very concerned about this. And it's beyond just the higher ed associations. There are a number of 
groups in Washington that I would call kind of the pro-patent coalition that meets on a, almost a weekly basis and talks about all kinds of issues dealing with the patent system. And there's been uh, a lot of efforts to try to get the White House not to agree to this request that came primarily from India and South Africa to have this, uh, to lift these uh, restrictions and say, no, these all should be uh, basically putting the patent kind of in the in the domain. Let's have, we don't need, we need more uh, uh, vaccinations. Let's let everybody make this vaccine and then we'll be able, we'll be able to solve the problem. The problem with that is that the, the issue with getting vaccines to other places is not the creation of the vaccine, it's the distribution. And this would do nothing to deal with the distribution issue. Um, thankfully, there, after they decided to go ahead and do that, we were very disappointed that they did that earlier this year. There was a suggestion that by the end of this year that they consider extending this to, as you said, uh, uh, diagnostics and treatments. Thankfully, the other day uh, they met and the White House has now said, well, we think there ought to be a study by the USTR to look into this. for, And that will take at least a year. So we've basically now delayed any any further change to this at WTO anytime soon. You know, the problem again here is that once you start doing this for things like COVID, I mean, there was already a discussion by the, I think, the exec, uh, the secretary general of WTO. Well, maybe we ought to, ought to apply this to clean energy technology. Exactly. Yes. I've heard that argument, too. Where do you draw the line? All these things, those are all important technologies. We need new, the world needs clean energy technologies. But if you take away the financial incentive for people to create new patents and new technologies to help solve those problems, how do you think these things, they don't they don't grow on trees. We're going to have to come up with them in labs and doing a lot of work all around the world. So we were a little heartened that, that on the second bite of the apple, the administration did not go along. And we're hopeful that, uh, that we'll see in a year or so where we are with WTO. But this is, again how these international groups can sometimes have over overextended influence in what we do here in the United States. Yeah, definitely. And it was a good news about um, the therapeutics and diagnostics. And we've kicked the can down the road for a little bit. We'll, we'll see what happens um, next year. So let's talk a little bit more about IP and particularly things that happened here in the U.S. And uh, again, like in most years, it seems like IP got a fair amount of attention from Congress. And there were a number of bills that were introduced um, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast about a particularly bad bill, and and I think you were referring to the Pride and Patents Ownership Act, which came out. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that particular act and, and why um, we should be concerned about it and, and what's the status of it at the moment? Yes. So this is a this is a bill introduced actually last year by uh, Senator Leahy from Vermont, who is the who used to be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. He continues to be an active member of the of the Senate uh, IP subcommittee as chairman there. Uh, and this was one of the bills he wanted to do as a follow up to his uh, AIA, the, the big patent reform that came in 2011. Um, unfortunately, this bill, while it purports to do one thing, actually does a lot of other things which are not helpful. In, in the spirit of trying to make it clear who actually owns the license or who's the licensee for different patents, it requires all kinds of information be produced in a very short amount of time. And if it's not, then it gives grounds to people who might be infringing on that patent to not be charged the same kind of penalties they would be charged otherwise. And in fact, it's actually, some people think it might actually create a list of patents that have viability, which would then say, okay, we're the incumbents. These are threatening technologies. Let's take these patents to IPRs. Let's take these patents to court. Let's slow these patents down because these are potential competitors to our technology. We're the top dog. We want to, don't want to give that up. And we thought that was a very dangerous proposal, as did many of our other folks in this pro-patent uh, 
uh, coalition. Uh, there was going to be a markup of that bill on Thursday, December 15th. And then we found out the night before that it had been canceled. And unless things change in the week before Congress heads home, it looks like that bill will not be passed by Congress, not be added to this omnibus appropriation bill. We're hoping that that's the case because we don't think that's the right approach to solving this problem. And if that's so, that's a big win for us because that's the kind of legislation that we think is another another nail in the coffin about IP users. We've had a lot of bad court cases that have come down that have affected uh, the ability of people, for example, on 101 to protect, to even, to even get their patent, even considered at the patent office. Uh, lots of other uh, lots of other rulings that have been very uh, harmful to the patent process. It's almost impossible now to get a patent for any kind of um, diagnostic test because everything's thrown out as being, oh, it's nature. It can't be patented, you know, and it can't be that simple. So that's been a problem. So I think I think that's 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 if this happens, like we're hoping that it will, and this bill does not come up, that will be a, a win for us. It doesn't solve the whole problem, but it keeps one more problem from being piled on top of us. Senator Leahy is retiring at the end of this year. He will not be back. And I think it's fair to say that um, it, this is this is not a likely topic for the next Congress because other people will be in charge. And I think their priorities are different than his. So um, I think that's kind of where we stand. Uh, it was one of these places where we dodged the bullet. But again, working with a coalition beyond our own our own associations, AAU joined with us in efforts on this. But a lot of other pro-patent groups raised objections, talked about the problems. Uh, former chief judge of the federal circuit, uh, Paul Michel, was very outspoken about this. And so I think that was very helpful to our cause in terms of making people understand this is not a simple thing and it should not be done at the end of the year without any consideration by the House or anyone else. And I think that that made that made a, a, an impression on a number of members to the point where we think now this thing has been uh, postponed or delayed. That's really, really good news, because I have to admit, I wasn't a big fan of that act either. And and I want to go back to you mentioned Section 101. And I spent a lot of time as a patent practitioner banging my head on my computer because I do a lot of diagnostics and uh, I struggle to get them for my clients. Do you see, you know, we've had Tom Tillis from North Carolina, who has been very active in trying to introduce legislation to try and, you know, deal with Section 101 and, and the case law surrounding it. Do you see any bright lights or some reasons for optimism with respect to Section 101? Oh, I absolutely do. Uh, even even this year before he before the uh, elections, uh, both Senator Tillis and Senator Chris Coons from Delaware uh, and in the new Congress, uh, Senator Coons will likely be the chair of the IP subcommittee. Senator Tillis will be the ranking Republican. They get along great. They have a great relationship and they're both on our side on this issue. They both see that we need to fix this 101 problem. So even before the end of the year, they were having conversations with various groups trying to see if we could put together some kind of legislation that might uh, resolve this in a fair way. And so I think you're going to see in the new Congress that bill being introduced and a lot of energy behind it and probably some hearings behind it and a lot of talk about it and how can we come up with a bill that was that will really solve this problem. And again, we're not talking about, I know people were concerned a few years ago, oh, we're going to be patenting genes and things like that. This specifically says you cannot do that. Of course, all that stuff's already been discovered anyway, so it's not really patentable. But this, there's a lot of angst that used to be about these sorts of things. I think we can address that. I think the bill that they will introduce will address some of that and make it clear that this is trying to just correct some kind of misguided Supreme Court positions on this issue, that they don't really understand that there are nuances here and that 101 shouldn't be throwing things out so quickly. There are other sections of patent law that are further filters on this, and let's let those do their jobs as well. So I think 
that actually is going to be one of the good things I think we're going to see in 2023 uh, is that bill. I, I think we'll we'll see a lot of other good ideas from Senators Tillis and Coons, which I think will be helpful. Um, since I'm talking about the election, I can also say that now the House, of course, will be run by the Republicans in the next Congress. So we'll be dealing with um, a couple of changes over there. We'll have probably the likely subcommittee chairman will be Daryl Issa from California, who, despite having a number of patents himself, is not very patent friendly. Really. On the other hand, uh, one of the members on his subcommittee, uh, Con- Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who got his degree at MIT and has a bunch of patents, is extremely pro-patent. And they're going to be on the same committee, on the same side of the aisle, wrestling with some of these issues. And uh, so we're looking forward to seeing how that's going to play itself out. Um, Jim Jordan, from congressman from Ohio, will be the chairman uh, of the Judiciary Committee, most likely. And uh, he, his, he doesn't have really a strong record on IP issues. He's kind of relied on other people to give him guidance. We'll see what happens in the new Congress, uh, whether he has more of, uh, whether uh, ISA has more of his ear or Massey does. But we're hoping to build a consensus there, along with the Democrats in that committee, that there needs to be some changes. And if we can get something going in the Senate, that will hopefully then stir some activity in the House to take a look at some of these same issues. Uh, but we're going to have divided government for the next two years, a Democratic Senate and a Republican House, again, both with very narrow majorities. It will be very difficult, probably almost impossible, to move any kind of legislation that has any kind of controversy around it because the numbers will be so close. So on the one hand, that might make moving positive legislation like 101 more complicated. On the other hand, I think it will make it easier to stop bad legislation, things like PIPO, uh, in the new Congress because we'll have the numbers will be uh, will be different. So it's always the way in Washington, things cut both ways. We'll see how it all breaks down, but it'll be an interesting two years. And then, of course, we'll be getting into the uh, presidential campaign in 2024. You know, who will be the candidates uh, for the, each party? Looks like looks like President Biden wants to run again. Who will be the Republican nominee? What does that person think about any of these issues? Um, you know, what will the administration be doing the next two years that it wants to do on its own, that it can do through its own executive orders? Uh, things like the DOE deck, we would hope there would be n- not anything more like that, but other kinds of executive activities. Uh, you know, the WTO example, another opportunity for the administration to act unilaterally without the Congress. So we'll have to keep our eyes open. There'll be a lot of things ahead of us that we'll want to be uh, watching the ball very closely on. And I think it'll be an interesting couple of years. I'm not sure we'll see any landmark legislation, but I think hopefully we can make some progress, particularly on the 101 issue. Yeah, I'm hopeful on 101 too. It's it's been ten over ten years now of uh, just uh, frustration for a lot of different folks on that that subject matter. So, so Mike, uh, looking ahead to next year in the future, what do you think tech transfer directors should focus on? Well, uh, it's interesting you ask because um, I'm actually doing a uh, doing a panel at the annual meeting in February, and I hope folks that they hear um, about that today will try to come. Um, you know, I think it's incumbent, I think, on tech transfer offices always to show their value. And, and we think about showing their value to people in Congress and local officials. But a lot of them, I think, um, feel the need and, and probably do need to make sure they're showing their value to the people on their own campuses. Uh, you know, most policies that the, a university advances in Washington uh, are basically approved by the VP of government relations and or research. And then also then the government, the federal relations people then get involved in then carrying out that along with the president. Um, so I would encourage people who, if they've not, not already done so, to make sure that they have strong relationships with both their, their, their senior uh, administrative person, their vice president of, of research in most cases. But they also have a, a good relationship with their federal relations folks on their campus or in their Washington office. 
it's really important that they have that line of communication back and forth. Make sure you get those people, if they're not on your campus, when they come back, bring them to your office. Talk about some of these issues that we care so much about. Uh, the Federation's people have an awful lot on their plate. They have to try to represent the entire agenda for the university, which goes way beyond tech transfer. It goes into things like, you know, financial aid and Pell Grants and tax law and all kinds of other kinds of things, other kinds of restrictions and regulations that universities face from the federal government. And so tech transfer is a small piece of that. So I think what you want to do is you want to educate people around you who are involved in the policy realm, the federal relations people, your boss, the, the VPR, whoever that might be, about why these issues are important to your office and to your office's success, and also to the success the university has in trying to take these technologies that it's created and spin them off, give them to people who can then further invest in these technologies. You know, that's the call of the Bayh-Dole Act. It was to take things out of the lab and get them to the marketplace and use the IP as kind of the bridge from the lab to the marketplace by having a patent then finding a licensee who actually would take that technology, further develop it, put more, uh, put more information, tweak it as they went along and create a final product then that could be a value to people. It's kind of the payback for the federal research dollars that universities get from the federal government and other people. So I think that's the way we have to look at it. And so I think the more you can create those strong relationships with people in those two offices on your campus, the more likely you will get their attention when things in Washington begin to bubble up and we say, hey, we need your help, University of whatever. Can you talk to Senator so-and-so? Can you talk to Congressman so-and-so about this issue? Because that, that talking is going to be done by the federal relations person in, co in cons consultation with their boss. And I think having them understand the importance of this, providing data, providing information, providing examples of the great work that you're doing and say, look, take this to Washington, explain why we're doing these things, how we've benefited the local community here. And I think they'll find more receptivity then when they want to talk about these issues or engage the federal relations people on their behalf. So that would be the one thing I would say is that build those bridges, provide the data, have an open door, be on top of things, share information. Uh, be willing to do whatever is needed to sort of help make that person's job easier. And then I think we'll see, uh, working with the higher ed associations like Autumn, AAU, APLU, COGR, for example, another powerful organization, the medical colleges, those five groups, if we can all work together and we can get our universities to engage, I think we can have a strong voice for these issues here in Washington. Now, Mike, you mentioned you're going to be doing this special panel at the autumn annual meeting in Austin. For folks who are interested in attending that, do you know what day that will be and maybe what time? It's going to be a Monday morning. It's going to be on the first day. You know, the opening session is Sunday night. We're going to have uh, they're going to have the, the new PTO director, Kathy Vidal, as the uh, as the fireside chat speaker. Uh, we've met with her here a few months ago when she first got her job and, and the higher ed associations have developed a good relationship with her. But then the next morning after the opening session, uh, my session will be from 11 to 12.15. And it will involve, I will have on my panel, uh, Joe Allen, who you mentioned earlier. Oh, that's great. Are gonna talk about, we're going to start to talk about what are the issues at play. But then we're going to have the provost of the University of Texas, who will be there, right there from the local community, talking about how these different agendas get formed at a university campus. And then two of my former colleagues, one from Indiana and one from Columbia, who will be there talking about how people have worked with them in the past, their tech transfer people have worked with them to advance a tech transfer agenda in Washington. So I think it'll be instructive and educational, it'll be a chance to ask questions, to see what's worked, and to see if there's a way for you to draw stronger uh, relationships on your own campus 
with the people who will be deciding how much your university weighs in on these issues. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic panel. So I'd encourage folks to, to look out for that and, and attend down in Austin. So, Mike, it's been really great to have this opportunity to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your advocacy insights. It's certainly been a fantastic year for autumn and tech transfer alike, and I'm super excited to see what 2023 holds in store for us. That thank you. It's my, my pleasure to be with you, Lisa. Well, with that, signing off for the last time this year, I'm Lisa Mueller. Have a wonderful new year. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.